Psalm chapter 15 is where we're going to go this morning as we continue our study on the topic of holiness. So last week, we focused on what it means for God to be holy. So that was our focus, the holiness of God. This week, what I want to show you, and, and on the back of the bulletin, a lot of times I'll put notes, and there are notes there, and there are nothing wrong with the notes there. I'm, I'm in favor, and in fact, I'll refer to those a couple of times, but this Sunday's a little bit different. After I put those notes out there, I thought, you know, that's not exactly the way I want to go about this. So, same topic. Still agree with everything on there. You can read it, use it, and I'll even refer to it maybe, but I'm going to go a little bit of a different direction. But the, the thought is... Holy God, holy people. And you say, yeah, I have no problem with a holy God. I, I believe that. I, I, I see the power of Isaiah chapter 6 that we talked about last week. But a holy people, are you sure? Uh, do you know the same people I know? And, and even beyond that, do you, do you know me? Like, we talk about a holy God, but what does it mean for us to be holy? What I hope will happen this morning, and we're going to take this from a couple of different angles, looking at a couple of different areas, but what I hope will happen in your heart this morning is your own confidence in the Lord's desire to shape us to be a holy people, that holiness is not an add-on, that it's the core of God's plan for your life, it's at the core of God's plan for His church, You would grow in the confidence of that. You would see that from Scripture in some new ways because we need to hold on to what we're talking about this morning in order to move into what we're going to talk about in the weeks to come. You believe in a holy God, but if you don't believe that He desires for holiness to be a part of your life, then it's really, frankly, not going to make a whole lot of difference what we look at in the weeks to come. And so my hope is that you would say, yeah, I desire that. I see that in Scripture. I believe that God desires to create a holy people, and he wants to do that in my life. And so I, after this morning, I'm willing to hold on to that. If you're not a follower of Jesus, that this morning would maybe spark some curiosity that being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, worshiping God— that the result of that is that God would change your life from the inside out. That What we're talking about over the next few weeks, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that what would happen over the next few weeks is maybe when you think of the word holy, we would help you think of that in a new way. Because I realize if you're not a follower of Jesus, that when you hear the word holy, that can be off-putting. That's everything about why you don't want anything to do with religion. But I hope over the next few weeks, this could help you rethink that word. So what we're going to do is we're going to read Psalm chapter 15 together. And then I want us to just take a moment to slow down, pray. We live busy lives. You come in here with a lot of things on your heart and your mind. We're just going to slow down for a minute, pray, and then we're going to get into what I believe that God has for us this morning. Psalm chapter 15. Here's how it starts. A Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, who takes up a reproach against his friend, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, 
who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray together as we start this morning. God, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, look at different sections of the Bible, look at the Bible in a big picture from beginning to end that you've given us, God, as we talk about holiness, I pray that one of the results of that this morning would be peace. God, if we are coming in here this morning with relationships that are hurting and broken, God, if we're coming in here with hearts that are not at peace, that as we study about holiness, as we think about this, God, that you would work peace in our hearts and our lives. God, that you would show us in a fresh way what you desire for our lives. It's easy to get lost in the day-to-day things that we have going on and lose sight of what you want to do in and through us. And so, God, I pray that for our lives individually and for us as a church, that you would remind us this morning that you have a plan of holiness for your people. And the result of that is incredible peace and joy that comes only from you. So, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So from the time I was a little kid, uh, I've always been interested in mountain climbing, but not dangerous mountain climbing, Mount Everest type mountain climbing, just mountain climbing in a very general sense of, of the word. So where we lived growing up, the county road department would dump this huge pile of gravel behind our house. Now, I'm not sure if we were supposed to climb on it or not, but if you dump a pile of gravel behind three brothers' house and they don't climb on it, that's your own fault. Like, that's just, it's there. So, my brothers and I, we would constantly climb up and down this huge pile of gravel that was behind our house. Our little church that we grew up in, we had a group of boys that were called Royal Ambassadors RAs. Uh, if you've grown up in church, you may have heard, had an RA group around, and so we had an RA group that we were a part of, and we would love to go out to the Wichita Mountains and go hiking out there in the mountains. If you've been down to southwest Oklahoma, to the Wichita Mountains, there's a couple of incredible areas. Not, not Mount Scott. You know, that's a tourist trap. You can do Mount Scott if you want. But there are some really cool, off-the-beaten-path climbing areas out there in the Wichita Mountains. And so we would go out there. If the moms went with us on the hiking trips, we all just kind of stayed on the trail and went up the mountain, and it was okay. If it was just the dads, though, on the trip, they would sort of kind of say, just go. (laughs) You know, let's sort of stay in the same area, but just go. And so you would send a group of boys up these mountains, and they would go all over the place. And somehow we almost always went home with as many kids as we took on those, on those RA trips. And we would go up the mountains. And when you're out there climbing with a group of boys, they find all kinds of ways to get to the top of the mountain. Some go this way, some go that way. And then we all end up on the top of the mountain. That works great if you're talking about a little kid's hiking trip. That does not work so great when you're talking about climbing the mountain of the Lord. Because if we're not careful, we realize that we live in a world where God's at the top of the mountain, you go that way, I'll go this way. As long as we get to the top of the mountain when it's all over, that's the main thing. But when you're talking about climbing the mountain of the Lord, you don't just climb the mountain any way you want. 
When we are coming to a holy God, we are only able to approach that holy God because he has made a way. And he has not said, make your own way to get up here. He says, I'm a holy God, and you will only approach me in holiness. I have made a way for you to come to me, because if there was not a way made, we could not approach him. You realize, we don't deserve to gather here in the presence of God. We don't deserve to live one moment in right relationship with God purely on our own standing. We serve a holy God who desires to be worshipped by a holy people, but he makes the way for that to happen. And we can only come to him through the way that he has made. Which tells us something. It tells us that holiness is not optional. We don't get to pick and say, well, I want to be a worshiper of God. I want to be a follower of Jesus, but I'm kind of going to do it my own way. I'm not an advanced Christian. I just want to be made right with God. If we are going to be in a relationship with the creator of the universe, the holy God who reigns over all things, our only hope is to be made holy. So what I want you to go home with today is that holiness is not optional for the follower of Jesus. Holiness is God's plan for his people to be made right with him, and it's, planned, it's his plan for his people for how they're going to live. I want you to see this quote on the screen from uh, a book called A Hole in Our Holiness by a man named Kevin DeYoung. I'm going to walk you through this, this quote. He says, The pursuit of holiness feels like one more thing to worry about in your already impossible life. You've got a lot on your plate, and you say, now the preacher wants me to be holy. I don't have room for holiness on my plate. Sure, it'd be great to be a better person, and you do hope to avoid the really big sins. But it goes on to say, you figure, since we're saved by grace, holiness is not required, and frankly, your life seems fine without it. The whole and our holiness is that we don't really care much about it. My hope for my life, and my hope for our church is that over the next several weeks we would begin to care about holiness. Not because we're prideful, not because we're trying to say look at us, we're saying we serve a holy God and only if we understand what it means to be made holy can we approach him in a relationship of worship and faith. Holiness is not optional. Now, it's one thing for Dion to say it. It's another thing to see it in Scripture. Let me show you a couple of verses on the Bible that, in the Bible that relate to this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There is no approaching God with impurity or uncleanness. Only impurity are we able to come before God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I hope verses like that, in in a proper way, cause fear in our lives. Now, appropriate fear, understand me here, what we're talking about, a reverence or a fear that says, I don't just walk into God's presence any way that I want to. Has there ever been a time in your life where you got access to an area that you thought, I'm probably not supposed to be here. 
Like you look around and you think, I don't belong in this place. It's probably because you snuck in there or maybe you accidentally you know, took, a, took a wrong turn or, or something like that. But you get into a place and you realize, I don't belong. When we're talking about the presence of God, in a very real sense, we can say, I don't belong here. I only come here because God has made a way. Without holiness, we cannot see God. Ephesians chapter 1 carries this idea forward. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. For what purpose? That we should be holy and blameless before him. When you think about your life and you think, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does God want to do in my life? He wants you to be holy and blameless. That is God's desire for your life. It's his desire for your family. It's his desire for our church. And we know, even better, it's his desire for all of creation. You go to the very end of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It was a holy city. And we're going to come back to this in a minute. But don't miss the fact that the whole story of the Bible ends up in a holy city. If you're not interested in holiness, you're not going to like where the story is going. The story leads toward a holy God with his holy people in his holy place. This is where everything points to. I saw the holy city, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Holiness is not an option for our lives. It can't we can't substitute anything else for it, except we try to do that. What, what do we substitute in place of holiness? You say, okay, Owen, I've, I want to track with you. I'm trying to hang in there. I know holiness is important. What, what else, though, is an option? Let me give you kind of a couple ideas. In our lives, in church life, there's something called pragmatism. In other words, I just do what works. I do what is immediately effective whether or not it reflects the holiness of God or not. So if it works, do it. Number two, and we're going to come back to this later in this series, but, but this is so important here. We substitute happiness in the place of holiness. So as I, I talk to people, especially in situations of a lot of pain going on in life and people trying to find their way and they want to come in and talk with a pastor, they will inevitably say, I just want to be happy. God just wants me to be happy. And, and yeah, yes, God, God does want, but not in place of holiness. Holiness leads to happiness. It's not temporary happiness in place of holiness. If your mindset is, God just wants me to be happy so I can do whatever I want to do, you realize the danger of that path, right? Because it's my happiness on my terms. God's desire, his greatest desire for your life is holiness, not happiness, which affects the way we think about marriage, affects the way we think about parenting, affects the way we think about going to work, affects the thing, way we think about our hobbies. God's desire for your life is holiness that ultimately leads to happiness, not happiness in the place of holiness. Traditions and rituals, this is the idea that if we're really going to be holy, 
You're going to take your weekly bath on Saturday night, and you're going to dress up in your best clothes on Sunday morning, and we're going to come in here, and we're going to be holy, all right? Because that's how we were holy then, or that's how they're holy in this culture and context. And if we're not careful, our traditions and our rituals come to substitute for what the Bible calls true holiness. You don't think this is a big deal for Jesus. You read Mark chapter 7, and you find out Jesus is getting very frustrated because people are substituting their traditions and their commandments in the place of what he truly calls something to be holy. And so before we blame everybody else for what looks like not being holy, we have to be careful we don't take our traditions and our rituals and put them in the place of holiness. So once again, you can wear your holy jeans and still be holy. It'll be okay. Number four, a segmented life. Here's what I mean by this. There's a good chance you would say, Owen, I have no problem being holy right now. I I struggle. I have challenges with that. But this is a holy place. It's really awkward when they say, and you're a holy person. You're like, well, talk to my wife. Like, we'll we'll work that out. Um, This is a holy place. So when I gather here at this location in this building for this purpose, yeah, holiness matters. But when I go home, that's my home. And when I go to work, that's my work. And when I go hang out with my friends, those are my friends. And so in the place of this whole life holiness, we segment holiness to one area of life. I am thankful to have this facility. I'm thankful to have this time to gather and worship. But holiness is not confined to this place or what happens in this time. We can't substitute one area of our life and say, this is going to be my holy portion and I'm going to live however I want. You realize that that doesn't work. So where do we go with this? We go back to Psalm 15. We go back to Psalm 15 in your Bible. What I want to do is walk you through portions of Psalm chapter 15 so we can see God's purpose and holiness. And then we're going to spend a couple of months unpacking how that happens and what it looks like in, in our lives. Not like I'm, you're going to go home and then come back. We're going to spend a couple of months <laughs> unpacking. That sounded better in my head than when it came out. So you'll go home. You'll come back next week. We'll do it. We'll go back home. We'll come back next week. Psalm chapter 15, verse 1. O Lord... Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, you don't have to go far in the Bible to run into this type of language in other places. In fact, Psalm chapter 24, verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Oftentimes, these psalms and others like it are called psalms of ascent. So when Jerusalem, when the the city of Jerusalem is mentioned in your Bible, not just because of geography, but also because of theology, you always go up to Jerusalem. So when you see Jerusalem mentioned in your Bible, you, you don't go down to Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem. And so when the people would take these pilgrimages and they would come to the holy city, there was a feeling of, I am ascending up to a very important place. I'm going up because God is up. There's something big going on here. So I'm going to go up. And what the people would do is they would sing these psalms 
to prepare their hearts, to remind themselves, who can do this? Like, you go first. You, you see how that works when you approach God. How's that going to go? Who can do this? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, it's, we're going to find out in just a second. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, there's holiness that's required. But what I want you to see is how this idea of mountains and holiness is all over the pages of your Bible. So we're going to go on a journey from the beginning of your Bible to the end of your Bible. And I want you to see the relationship that happens between holiness and mountains in the Bible. So watch how this happens. We're going to start in the Garden of Eden, okay? I don't know what you have in your mind as a picture of the Garden of Eden. But let me encourage you from now on, in your mind, the Garden of Eden is on a mountain. Because it was. Both in Genesis chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 28, there are references to the Garden of Eden being perched on a high place, being placed on a mountain. And so in our minds, as we think about the Garden of Eden, you put it on a mountain because that's where God had placed it. It was a holy place. God had created a holy place where his people could live in holiness and worship before him. Now, there's going to be a very important relationship when we start talking about the temple and where it was built and the way that creation is meant to work. But the Garden of Eden is on a mountain. It's, it's on a holy place. When sin happens, the people are kicked out of the garden, and they begin to move down and away. They begin to move east from that holy place until ultimately a flood happens. Where does the ark end up? after the flood, on a mountain. Another holy place as God brings his people into his presence and there's an altar there. The people continue to rebel. What happens after they rebel? They build their own fake holy mountain. When you read about the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, that's meant to be a contrast with the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God built his holy place on a holy mountain, and the story has gotten so out of control that now people are trying to build their own holy mountain to reach God. And he says, no, no, you don't build your own way to me. I make a way for you to come to me. So what happens next? There's another mountain that shows up, Mount Moriah. You get to the story of Abraham. Abraham and Isaac go up on the mountain together, and what did they experience there? They experienced God's plan to bring healing and forgiveness and sacrifice for his people. But the people rebel against God. And so the story of Genesis leads to the people being in Egypt. You know how you get to Egypt in the Bible? You go down to Egypt. So here they are in the promised land, in the presence of God, but God sends them down to Egypt in slavery. How do they get out of Egypt? They pass through water. We had the flood. Now we have the Red Sea. They pass through water and they go to another mountain. They go to Mount Sinai, this holy mountain where God meets with his people, ultimately with Moses, and gives them the law, gives them the, the Levitical uh, instructions about building the tabernacle and, and giving the sacrifices. But what do the people do again? 
They rebel. And so they go down into the wilderness, and they travel through the wilderness, and what happens next? They go through the Jordan River. They went through the flood. They went through the Red Sea. Now they've gone through the Jordan River. Where does that lead them? Another mountain. As Joshua brings the people into the land, the covenant before God is reestablished on Mount Ebal. Mount Gerizim also plays a role in that, but Mount Ebal. So they're there in the promised land. They've come back to God's holy place, and they've reestablished the covenant on God's holy mountain, and they rebel. The book of Judges says everybody does what is right in their own eyes. So, so they rebel. So God sends them judges, but then he takes them to another mountain because he's going to reestablish the kingdom through Saul and David and Solomon, and they're going to build a temple on Mount Zion. Did you know that the temple there is meant to relate to God's creation in Genesis 1 and 2? And so God has established a holy place for his people to meet with him, to worship him, to experience his power. So they're there on the mountain, and they rebel again. And the kingdom is divided, and the people go into exile. Do you know what direction they go when they're going into exile? They go east again. When's the last time God sent his people east? When they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. He established the holy place, they rebelled, and they were sent east. He established the kingdom in the temple, they rebelled, and they were sent down into the east in exile. And now you've reached the end of your Old Testament. Where's the story going? Where's the hope? Well, somebody shows up who really likes mountains. You know who that is? Jesus. We're in church, so Jesus is the right answer, all right? Somebody shows up who really likes mountains. Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. He goes up on the mount to be the new Moses, to give his people the law for how they're going to live. He goes up on the mountain with his disciples to be transfigured. Transfiguration is the $1,000 word to say he showed them that he was truly God with them. He showed them his glory. He showed them his power. He goes up on a mountain to be crucified. And then he goes down to a place of death because he's taking on all that sin, all that rebellion, all that death that we deserve. He takes on himself and then he goes to the ultimate mountain, the resurrection, the ascension. The disciples are gathered where with him on the mountain and he returns to be seated as king of kings and lord of lords with God the Father. Follow that with, we live in a time as a church, of trials and temptations, trusting in the enthroned Savior, but realizing we're so susceptible to the trials and temptations of this world. So what's the final mountain? The final mountain comes when you get back to the book of Revelation. When you get back to the book of Revelation, you get to Revelation 21.10. John says that he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. God's plan for his people is that they would be a holy people living in his holy place. He designed that in the Garden of Eden. He will reestablish that even greater in the new heaven and the new earth. 
It doesn't matter if you're in the Garden of Eden, though, or the new heaven and the new earth. The only way that you can be there is through holiness. Go back to Psalm chapter 15. Verse 2. Who dwells on the holy hill? Who can be before God? Psalm 15, verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, the one who speaks truth in his heart. As you read through these verses in Psalm 15, maybe a core word that would be helpful is the word integrity. That the person that's being talked about in Psalm 15 is a person who can only be this way because of the work of God in them. It's not live this way and then you can become right with God. It's this is the type of work that only God can do in a person's life to give them that integrity with him and with others. Verse 3, the person who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend quickly we realize that holiness before God is meant to impact our relationship with one another. It's not just right with God. It's right with God so we can be right with one another. Verse 4, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. In other words, someone who doesn't go back and forth about what is right or wrong. It's not, well, I'll act this way one way and then I'll, or one time, and then I'll turn around and act another way another time. It's, I realize that God has established what is right. Only he can call something just and holy. So we're going to honor him who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Verse 5, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Then look at the end of verse 5. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is a beautiful part of Scripture. When you think about something being established on the mountain, hopefully you think about it being secure. The idea of being on the top of the mountain is that you're in a place of stability, you're in a place of security. God says that the one who comes to him in holiness, who dwells on his holy mountain, this is the one who shall never be moved. With holiness comes peace and stability that can only come from God. How do we know this? The end of Psalm 15 is picked up in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12. If you would, because we're going to end there, if you would turn in your phone or in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to end with these verses. I know we've covered a lot of verses this morning. We went from Genesis to Revelation, but if you're not comfortable finding the book of Hebrews in your phone or your Bible, it's going to be toward almost the very end. You go to the book of Revelation at the end, you back up to the left, and you're going to find Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, what, what Hebrews chapter 12 is going to help us do is we're going to connect holiness, God's desire for holiness for his people, with the stability and peace and joy that he wants to bring. Because there's a good chance that you're here and you're saying, you know what, you could call my life a lot of things, but stable and peaceful is not always what you would call my life. Where does that type of stability and peace come from? It comes from holiness. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to pick up in verse 18. Here's how it works. Here's how all this comes together, how it meets, meets up. For you have not come 
to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. This is in reference to Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. When the people thought about that Mount Sinai experience in the Old Testament, they were terrified to go before a holy God in this holy place. Because if you even get close, you're going to die. 21. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, even Moses said, I tremble with fear. Verse 22. You've not come to that place. That's not what you've been called to in Jesus. Instead, you have come to Mount Sion, Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God who is judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, verse 24, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Can you approach a holy God? Not a chance on your own. But Jesus has made a way. That simple verse from John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a reference to holiness. We only approach a holy God through him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25. If that's true, what do you do about that? See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. In other words, pay attention to this. If you turn away from this, there is no other way to be made right with the creator of the world. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, Moses, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the coming removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Your world can be easily shaken up. In a moment, something can come into your world, can come into your life that shakes the circumstances, shakes up what is going on. But there is a hope that cannot be shaken. There is a hope that is stable and firm and brings peace that goes beyond anything we can ever imagine. Therefore, verse 28, let us be grateful that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We serve a holy God, and on our own, we do not come into his holy place. It is only through the way that he has made, and he has made a way. And so when we receive that, when we understand that, when we trust in Christ and we find that kingdom that can't be shaken, what do we do as a result? We worship him. And we worship him with reverence and awe, not with pride, but with humility that says, thank you, God. Thank you for who you are as a holy God, 
and thank you for what you are doing in my life and in my church to make us a holy people so we can be made right with you. Look at this last slide. I want us to wrap up with this. What does it look like to be a holy people? Pragmatic? Just, just do what works? Just make it through life and do your best? No. God desires not short-term productiveness in your life. Your greatest need in life is not to be a super productive person. And I say that to myself because I'm so driven by that. Greatest need in life is that we would have long-term fruitfulness, that God would work in our life. Is your greatest desire and need to be holy? I mean, to be happy? No, it's the need for eternal joy that goes beyond what we, we face right now. Holy people, are they religious people? Not just outward religion, but transformed from the inside out. Segmented, God gets this part of my life, but not this part. Not at all. We are whole. We are unshaken. We have that stability. If we understand who God is in his holiness, and we understand what his purpose is for our lives and for this world, our only prayer becomes, God, make me holy. God, through Jesus Christ, do in my life what only you can do. And I pray this morning that you will make that commitment. That if you are here trying to find your way to God on your own strength and you're worn out in the process, your life has no stability, no peace, no joy, that you would know that it's found through Jesus Christ. And if you are a follower of Jesus, but you admit, you know what, I kind of treat holiness as an add-on. I understand what it means to follow Jesus, but frankly, I don't think much about holiness, and I certainly don't desire holiness in my life. I pray that God would use this morning to remind you what he really wants to do in your life. And what he really wants to do is make you a holy person who will dwell with him, live with him in his holy place for his holy purposes. Let's pray together. Here in just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song together. While we, while we sing this song together, we pass our offering place around, we put our offering, guest cards, prayer cards in there, giving back to the Lord. But during this time as we sing this song, ask yourself a very simple question. Do I know what it is to be a holy person before a holy God? Do I know what it is to recognize God's holiness that's so far above anything I can ever achieve on my own? And do I realize that he wants me to be made holy so I can be right with him? And that only comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus has taken all of your past. He has taken all of your pain. He's taken all of your sin. He has taken the death that each of us deserve and he has made a way for us to go up that mountain. He has made a way for us to be in the presence of God. And if you believe that, that your response today would be to worship him in reverence and in awe. And your response would be to worship him with everything you have to give when you leave this place. God, we believe on the basis of your word from that picture in Isaiah chapter 6 that you are a holy God. 
But we have a hard time understanding that you want us to be a holy people. God, remind us of that this morning. Make us holy through Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.